1: after Pretender Biden was inaugurated, I gave you a warning about something that was going to take place in America, and it's one more reason why I think we'll never again have anyone but a Democrat in the White House. This week, we'll re-examine my previous warning and see how that's shaping up. Did you know that statistics from CARA say that 70% of Catholics get 100% of their Catholic information from your Parish Sunday Bulletin? After my pastor mentioned to me that he'd like to find a way to catechize the whole parish without setting up a class, this little statistic inspired an idea. With my pastor's permission, I began writing a bulletin insert called What We Believe, Why We Believe It. Since it's merely inserted into the bulletin, it's intrusive, meaning that parishioners have to remove it to read the bulletin. In the process, they read this little thumbnail catechism lesson, and they let Father know that they love them. You see, I teach the faith with stories, anecdotes, and parables. They're not your typically boring catechesis. And best of all, I teach why we're supposed to believe the church's teachings, which affirms your parishioners in their faith. As a convert and consecrated member of the Marian Catechist Apostolate under the direction of Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, I teach the entire faith, even tackling the really tough moral issues. You can learn more by watching an 11-minute video by clicking the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. So you can try it without risk, you can get it for three months. You can even download three samples while you're on the page with the video. This is ideal for good priests who want to help their parishioners become fully catechized, and a lot of lay people get a subscription for their parish as a way to support the parish without having to give the bishop any of their money. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six Pack System Bulletin Inserts. It just requires 11 minutes of your time. Before I get started, I have to say something to a small group of you six-pack warriors. I've been getting some pretty interesting financial gifts in the mail. I haven't written you a word of thanks because I'm just too backed up. Through all that I do, this apostolate now reaches an estimated 300,000 Catholics each week, and I work all by myself. So I apologize for not having acknowledged those special financial gifts through the mail, but I hope you can understand why I haven't. At any rate, thank you very much for your kindness and generosity. Nearly a year ago, I made the prediction that the Biden administration was grooming our military to be the enforcers for the tyranny Joe Biden's imposing on America. At the time, I told you that it was evident to me because Biden was attempting to purge all Trump supporters from the military by classifying them as white supremacists, homophobes, and racists. Fortunately, that scheme proved a little too ambitious and difficult for the administration, but that hasn't stopped them from a purge. Last week, Fox News reported that a political purge is taking place in all six branches of the military in an article titled, Marines Say They're Being Crushed Over Vaccine Refusal, A Political Purge. The article was written by Jessica Chasmar. The Biden administration is rooting out its political opponents from the military, and there's only one possible motive for that. I'd like to read a few excerpts from that article, then make my comments. According to the article, to date, 169 Marines have been discharged for refusing the vaccine and thousands more face the same fate after the Department of Defense's mandate on all active duty service members went into effect for the Marine Corps on November 28. Several Marines said they are witnessing a political purge by the Biden administration that is forcing out the military's best and brightest over deeply held beliefs they say are protected by the First Amendment. There's something fundamentally wrong at this point with our nation's leadership, said a major with more than 17 years of active service. We are facing an unconstitutional edict that I think is very targeted as a political purge, taking out some of the best and brightest soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians from the Space Force. A lieutenant colonel with more than 19 years of active service said it appears that the military, specifically the Marine Corps, is discharging service members as fast as they can and as brutally as they can, damaging every Marine as much as they can on the way out. On the religious side, this is absolutely a travesty what's happening, one chief warrant officer said. People are getting blanket denials, they're not addressing the individual concerns or beliefs of Marines who are submitting for religious accommodations, and I think that's just horribly wrong. A Marine major said, my son, my cousins, they will not be signing up for the service. You talk about the generational damage that was caused during Vietnam and how we treated our veterans there, this will be significantly worse. He added that with current tensions in Russia, Ukraine, and China, the military is sacrificing in readiness by purging thousands of able-bodied men and women ahead of a World War III scenario. California Representative Darrell Isis spokesman Jonathan Cox said, I think that this White House and this president are declaring a rhetorical war on what they call the unvaccinated, and they're catching the military in that same rhetorical battle. They are determined to fire, remove, and, I think, ruin those who are challenging their mandate. The focus of this article, the focus of Republicans in Congress, and the focus of the quotes taken from these Marines is all wrong. Conservatives are smart, but we tend to see things that face value and accept them as such. Democrats, on the other hand, are like professional illusionists. They create a diversion so you're not paying attention to what's really going on. We've made the mistake of thinking the Democrats are crazy for all the extreme radical things they're pushing—vax mandates, LGBT, hate speech, defunding the police, and all the other craziness. But the simple fact is, they're crazy like a fox. As I've told you before, I spent over two decades working in prison apostolate. While I met a lot of men of goodwill who have seen the errors of their ways and converted to Catholicism in order to live a better life, I was also exposed to some of the worst criminals you could imagine. When criminals, who are master manipulators, have an agenda, they always use diversionary tactics to keep the focus from their true agenda. Then they spring the fullness of their agenda when it's too late for you to stop it. Democrats always, not merely sometimes, but always, show the very same traits as those criminals because they themselves are criminals. Like criminals in prison, they only care about power, control, and their personal greed. The diversion here is the VAX mandates and the refusal to give religious exemptions for those mandates. That's not what's really going on, though. What's really going on is a political purge of service members in the military who are true patriots and enemies of the leftist agendas. Think about it as the America-hating Democrats think. The military loved Trump, and most Republican presidents we've had since the end of World War II. Why? Most soldiers who served beyond one enlistment are there for their love of country. Traditionally they sure haven't made a career out of the military for financial inducements. While Trump was in office our troops especially loved him. He proved to them that he cared about them by visiting hospitals and spending Christmas with them. He built up the military to make our armed forces the strongest in the history of the world. He built the morale among our soldiers to be the highest it's been in recent memory. But make no mistake. These young men and women came out of this current evil and immoral culture, a culture that criminal Dems have spent decades trying to make as perverse and criminal as they themselves. And they've largely succeeded. Purging soldiers from the military for refusing to get the jab has nothing at all to do with the jab itself. It has to do with getting rid of our best and brightest who threaten the criminal Dems' agenda. Very few young people today have any sort of moral compass, exactly what the leftists have been pushing to accomplish for decades. Once they've removed the men and women from the military who actually have a moral compass and are genuine patriots, what's left is a military that can be used to force the tyrannical policies of the criminal Dems on the rest of us. Why do you think the Dems have been trying so hard to disarm the citizenry while at the same time militarizing every agency of the federal government, to include the Department of Education? Why does the Department of Education need military weapons anyway? The Dems are hedging all bets. That'll allow us, and yes, I do mean allow us, to regain a majority in Congress in November, albeit a nominal majority, to avoid a full-scale civil war while they finish putting things into place for the 2024 election. Then whoever the Democrat is who's running for president is going to win, and the military and all of the militarized federal agencies will be called out to control us when we rise up against them, classifying us as domestic terrorists and killing and imprisoning as many of us as they can. When we retake the majority in Congress in November, don't count on the new majority to do anything. Even when we had the majority, Congress was the only institution in America to have a lower approval rating with the American people than the lamestream media. The stupid party, that would be the Republican Party, has never done anything except compromise and give in to the criminal Dems. So the Dems are going to continue to get ready for the military takeover in 24. But Joe, the new majority will impeach Biden. I have no doubt that they're going to do that. No doubt at all. And the Senate will probably convict and remove him from office. But look who's going to fill his shoes. It'll take the entire two years to get Biden impeached and removed from office. There won't be time to remove Harris. They know this. That's why a feckless Biden went to the White House and Harris was made his vice president in the first place. They don't lose anything when they lose Biden, and Harris is going to play along perfectly. To the best of my knowledge, I'm the only pundit publicly saying these things. Many people think I'm a whack job conspiracy theorist. However, I know others who think like I do, but they simply lack the courage to say it in public. The time for hesitation based on fear is over. So what are we going to do about this? Well, there are two things we can do, and you're not going to like either one. First, begin by stockpiling as many guns and as much ammunition as you can. Hide them so they're not easily found when they come to take them. Unless you plan to be a victim of the left, you're going to need those guns. You'll know when to use them unless you become a coward. The second thing is to get off the grid as best you can. I'm currently researching and writing a book on how to do that. I hope to have it available in a few weeks. One thing from my research is certain, you're going to have to learn to do without your bling and personal comforts. You're going to have to completely alter your way of thinking. What's coming is a storm to usher in communist tyranny. We have to be prepared. We have to become the storm the Democrat communists aren't expecting. Could it be that I'm wrong? Yep, and I truly hope that I am wrong. But I don't think so. Everything collectively that's happened the past six years points to what I'm telling you here. So be strong. Be a strong American Catholic. Be a strong American Catholic patriot. And never give up. Something special I'm trying to do for you is build a membership area on my website. That area will have loads of video and audio courses you can take at your convenience. There's just one problem, and someone listening can help me out with that problem. I had to purchase a high-end software to develop the members area. But now that I reach an estimated 300,000 souls each week, host weekly webinars, write for three Catholic media platforms, produce weekly bulletin inserts, and other things, I simply don't have the time to learn this new software. If anyone listening is tech-savvy or has worked with Lifter LMS, and if you're willing to donate your time to help, I really need you to build out this membership area for me. If you can help, just reach out to me at joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. It's in my show notes.
0: Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five.
1: Hats off to the Washington Examiner. The social media platform Twitter permanently banned Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene for repeated violations of our COVID-19 misinformation program, a Twitter spokesperson stated. Greene responded via her Telegram account and said that Twitter was an enemy to America that can't handle the truth.
2: Wow! That's just incredible!
1: You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
0: Catholic Catholic news pick pick number
1: number four. Hats off to newsbusters. Popular podcaster Joe Rogan joined Getter, a new social media platform intended to rival Twitter. Within a few hours, Rogan had 8 million followers on the alternative platform, which was created in response to big tech censorship. Rogan recently warned, all these, like internet companies, whether it's Google or whether it's Facebook or Instagram, if they just censor you based on ideology, then you don't have freedom of speech. That's awesome, dude! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic news pick Pick number number three. three. Hats off to Breitbart. Nine U.S. billionaires saw their wealth grow by more than $340 billion over the last year. The American middle class saw its share of the nation's wealth decline to just 26.6%, while the top 1% share grew to 27%. Since 1991, the top 20% of U.S. income earners saw their share of national wealth grow by about 10 percentage points. What? You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic
0: Catholic News Pick Number 2
1: Hats off to the Washington Examiner. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene put forward a provocative plan that would impose tax and voting penalties on people fleeing liberal states for conservative states. The legislation was inspired by a viral video of a man leaving the San Francisco area because of its harmful policies. He fled to Florida, but said he was apprehensive of Florida's worst politics. Commentator Pedro Gonzalez wrote, "This guy is moving from California to Florida because he can't stand living in the mess that lib politics created, and he still has the audacity to talk down to Floridians about their politics. I support actively discriminating against transplants like this through legislation." Representative Ruben Gallego accused Green of being a traitor for proposing the legislation.
3: You're an idiot!
1: You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
0: Catholic Catholic News Pick Pick Number number 1
1: Hats off to the Daily Signal Legislation in Oklahoma would allow parents to remove sexually graphic books from school libraries. The legislation would make books in the school libraries that make their primary subject the study of sex, sexual preferences, sexual activity, sexual perversion, sex-based classifications, sexual identity, or gender identity. If the bill becomes law, a student's parent or legal guardian can initiate a process to remove such books by written request. (laughs) You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I am hard, but I am fair.
0: It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your Drill Sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before this boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack.
1: Pope Paul VI gets a really bad rap as a weak and incompetent pope. He wasn't at all weak nor incompetent. This holy pope had what was perhaps the most difficult papacy in memory. He had to deal with rebellious bishops and priests who were agents of darkness in a time when the whole world was experiencing rebellion against virtually everything—legitimate authority, the sexual revolution, Marxism masked as progressivism, and a global move to displace God in the public square, to name a few— Catechesis had been watered down and neglected in the dioceses because of these same agents of darkness. The Catholic faithful weren't only being assaulted by the rebellious culture of the time, but they had to deal with those assaults absent of any real knowledge of the faith. It was during this time that the most insidious plans by criminal neo-modernists in the Catholic Church were put into place to rob the faithful of their belief and acceptance of the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. As a result, 70% of Catholics don't believe that the Eucharist is the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. They think the Eucharist is a mere symbol or representation of Christ. The one thing these evil modern Judases did that resulted in more harm to the faith of the people than anything else was to disobediently and deceptively introduce communion in the hand. This is so evil, in fact, that it must be treated in its fullness. I realize you're getting tired of hearing about it, but as long as six-pack warriors continue to cooperate with this evil by receiving in the hand, I'm going to continue exposing the truth. You must stop the evil practice of communion in the hand. Let's listen to what Simon Rafe has to say about it this week. And let me remind you that there's a link in my show notes where you can buy both seasons of this video series called Case Files.
2: Paul VI was on the throne of Peter when the Second Vatican Council closed, and it fell to him to implement the Council's reforms. Of course, that didn't mean he did it all himself, nor does it mean that everything that happened after Vatican II was called for by the Council or eagerly advanced by Paul VI. Those of us who have actually studied the documents of the Second Vatican Council know very little, if anything, of what happened in the decades following the Council was actually called for. Most of the changes and all of the abuses aren't found in the documents, They were changes made by agents of darkness, cloaking their actions under a false spirit of Vatican II. One particular abuse that Vatican II did not call for, and which Paul VI fought against, was communion in the hand. He started in 1965 with the apostolic exhortation Mysterium Fidei. This was his first salvo, launched before he realized just how bad things were and how much worse they were going to get. He didn't strike directly at communion in the hand, rather he wrote beautifully and eloquently using his exhortation to exhort the faithful to a greater understanding of love for and reverence towards the Eucharist. He hoped that this, a growth in appreciation for the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, would help curb the evil and destructive abuse of communion in the hand that was beginning in the low countries of Holland and Belgium. Perhaps Paul VI was naive. Certainly his efforts to guide the erring bishops of the Netherlands back to authentic appreciation of the Eucharist with gentle compassion fell on deaf ears and they failed. Things went from bad to worse. When he spoke more firmly, they not only defied him and refused to end the abuse, but asked for special permission to break the law. Now, Paul VI had, in a moment of weakness, granted that permission, but then very quickly rescinded it and sought counsel from all the bishops of the church. What did they think about communion in the hand? Would the faithful accept it? Was it a good idea? The answer was a resounding no. The majority of bishops were opposed to it. Yet the problem persisted, and it was in danger of spreading. It does not take many agents opposed to the light to spread a pile of darkness over the church. We have to remember the historical context, what was going on in the world at this time. It was the 1960s, a time of rebellion and questioning, a period of throwing off of old rules and experimenting with new ones, if there were rules at all. Protestant-inspired ideas which blurred the distinctions between clergy and laity, such as communion in the hand, were eagerly accepted by many poorly catechized Catholics in the pews. Really, this was the perfect storm crashing down on the bark of Peter, a failure of catechesis. And yes, Catholic catechesis was failing long before Vatican II. This left the laity with a hollow understanding of the faith. They might know what the church taught, but many of them no longer knew why or did not consider the teachings important. The laissez-faire, experimental attitude of the 1960s, coupled, coupled with the horror of the sexual revolution and widespread adoption of the pill, left Catholics thinking the church was out of touch. And then, of course, there was Vatican II. Not the council itself, but rather the false spirit of Vatican II. Most Catholics then, as now, had no idea what the council actually taught. But ignorance never stopped people from wanting to give the impression they knew what was going on. But neither did it encourage people to actually take the effort to learn. They were happy, then as now, to get a vague sense and live their life as if they were sure. So it did not take many agents of darkness, men with an active agenda to advance Protestant theology in the church, to ride this storm and use it to hijack not only the message of Vatican II, but also the faith of thousands and ultimately millions of Catholics. There were few men who really wanted to push communion in the hand, but in the storm of the 1960s, they were enough to funnel a growing wave of useful idiots into a tsunami that threatened to crash down on the bark of Peter and Swamper. And so Paul VI decided to make one last attempt to prevent communion in the hand from becoming the norm in the church. The result was a document from the Congregation of Divine Worship, the liturgical branch of the Roman Curia. Although the document was produced by this congregation, it was personally called for by Paul VI and even crafted in its essence by him. After close review, he approved it. It's quite fair to say this document reflects the Pope's thoughts, desires, and wishes. In many ways, he can safely be called its author. Just how closely Paul VI was associated with this document is shown by the method by which he asked for it to be produced. He communicated his desires to the Congregation of Rites, which would be renamed the Congregation of Divine Worship very shortly afterwards. Not by a formal instruction drafted by an underling and typed by a secretary that began His Holiness Wishes, but by a handwritten memo. This memo is very instructive and clearly shows Paul VI's intent in having the document drafted. Let a summary report of the results of the consultation of the bishops be given, which will confirm the mind of the Holy See regarding the inopportuneness of the distribution of Holy Communion in the hands of the faithful, indicating the reasons for it liturgical, pastoral, religious, etc. Therefore, the present practice remains the norm. That, right there, puts paid to any suggestion Paul VI wanted to promote communion in the hand. Certainly, he never saw it as normative, ordinary, or the way the Eucharist should be distributed. He argued strongly against it himself, and now he was instructing the Congregation of rights to produce a document which would clearly state communion shouldn't be given in the hand, and also to say why. But there was a fly in the ointment. Paul VI went on to write in the same memo, If any Episcopal conferences nonetheless think that they ought to allow this innovation, let them resort to the Holy See and afterwards to adhere, if the requested permission is granted, to the norms and instructions that will accompany it. Right here we see the first blow that would result in the chink in the Holy See's armour against communion in the hand. Paul VI authorises the Congregation of Rights to allow exceptions to set up rules by which permissions will be granted. As we will see later when we study the great American treachery that opened the floodgates for this abuse to become almost universal, there are specific conditions which must be met in order for communion in the hand to be approved by a local jurisdiction. It's absolutely clear that neither the Congregation of Rights nor Paul VI ever expected or suggested communion in the hand should be universally approved or allowed, and certainly not permitted, except under very specific circumstances. But nevertheless, permission would be possible under Paul VI's plan. Why was this? After fighting so hard against communion in the hand, why would he capitulate and allow it? A clue is found elsewhere in the memo. It must be kept in mind that the practice or abuse of distributing communion in the hand is already widespread in some countries, and that the bishops, for example, Cardinal Swenens, etc., do not think it possible to suppress it. Here, it is not only clear Paul VI thought communion in the hand was an abuse, he specifically uses the word, but also that he was worried about how far it had already spread. In the Netherlands, the bishops had told him it was impossible to stop. We've already talked about possible reasons why Paul VI accepted this explanation, why he didn't tell the dissident bishops they had to stop it. Perhaps he was afraid of schism, perhaps he was worried it would be counterproductive and backfire. Whatever the reason, it is certain this sort of hardline leadership just wasn't his style. As I've already said, hindsight is always 20-20 and Monday morning quarterbacking is easy. The memo Paul VI wrote to the Congregation of Rites certainly showed he considered communion in the hand an abuse, that he never intended it to be the usual method of receiving the Eucharist, and that he was worried about how far it had spread. He thought, perhaps because men like Suenz told him so, it was impossible to suppress. And so his desire was to prevent schism and stop any further spread of this abuse. Like a doctor faced with a deadly disease it was impossible to cure, he wanted to quarantine the plague. The Congregation of Rites was renamed Congregation of Divine Worship before the publication of Paul VI's instruction. Like all papal and Vatican documents, it takes its name from its opening words in Latin. In this case, they were memoriali domini, which means the memorial of the Lord, an explicit and reverential reference to the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which made it clear the stance of the document and the Pope was taking. It was promulgated on May 29th, 1969. But it wasn't just the title that conveyed the message. Speaking about communion on the tongue, the document says, This method of distributing Holy Communion must be retained, not merely because it is rooted in many centuries of tradition, but especially because it expresses the reverence of the Christian faithful for the Eucharist. It is part of that preparation that is needed for the most fruitful reception of the body of the law. How much more clear can it be Communion on the tongue must be retained because it is more reverent and better prepares us to obtain more graces when we receive communion. That right there is more than just an instruction from the Pope. It's an instruction of why the instruction is made. So many people who malign Paul VI saying he wanted communion in the hand or that if he didn't want it he should have come out and said so just don't seem to be aware of memoriali domini or choose to be unaware of it because it is useful for their agenda. This is part of the deception carried out by the agents of darkness. They have given the impression the Pope was ambivalent about the method of reception of the Eucharist. Nothing, of course, is further from the truth. Listen to what the document goes on to say. This practice, that is, communion on the tongue, ensures more effectively that Holy Communion is distributed with all due respect, decorum, and dignity, so that the danger of profanation of the Eucharistic species is prevented, in which, in a unique way, Christ, God and man, is present whole and entire, substantially and continually, so that finally the diligent care is preserved, which the Church always recommended regarding the fragments of the consecrated bread. What you have allowed to fall, think of it as though one of your own members were amputated." Stop and think about that for a second. We are to think of dropping a fragment of the Eucharist, the merest crumb, as if we had lost an arm or a leg. Now, if we did think about it like that, would anyone ever risk it? Yet people do risk it by receiving in the hand. Remember, that is what this passage is talking about. It isn't merely saying we should be careful when receiving the Eucharist so we don't drop particles, but telling us specifically that reception on the tongue is the way to be careful. Just consider the reality of the Eucharist. Veiled under the appearance of bread and wine is Jesus Christ, creator and redeemer of the universe, God and the Son of God, the one who hung on the cross to forgive our sins. The Eucharist is not merely a symbol, nor is the reception of it merely symbolic. It's a sacrament, a sign which is what it signifies. The Eucharist is God, and it is God who saves us. We are saved not merely by faith in Jesus Christ, but by participating in his sacrifice on Calvary, which is represented to us each and every mass. In order to receive the graces and forgiveness of the sacrament, we must consume the Eucharist and consume it physically as real food. The Eucharist itself is an inestimable treasure, and by receiving it into our hands, the unconsecrated hands of the laity, we risk profanation of it, dropping crumbs, dusting fragments off onto the floor to be trampled underfoot. All of that is not only possible, but likely and that doesn't take into account the message our actions give. By having the Eucharist handled like ordinary food, by having the laity handle it like the priests do, we blur the distinction between the sacred and the profane and introduce a Protestant mindset into the Mass. Don't just take my word for it. Listen to what Memoriale Domini has to say. A change in a matter of such importance based on a most ancient and venerable tradition can also bring certain dangers, which are feared to arise from the new manner of administering Holy Communion that of arriving at a lessening of reverence for the august sacrament of the altar, or of profanation of the sacrament, or of adulterating true doctrine. Right here, Rome makes a huge deal out of communion in the hand. Yes, there is the danger of profanation by loss of particles, but there is something even worse and more insidious here. It's a destruction of the faith of the people by giving them the impression that Jesus isn't really there, that the Eucharist is just ordinary bread, because it is treated as ordinary bread. And if people don't believe it is really Jesus, why would they go to Mass? They will stop going. Consider the Catholic Church nothing more than one of various options they can pick and choose from, depending on how they feel at that time. And of course, in the perfect storm that has raged since the 1960s, Catholics unmoored from the authentic faith by a loss of reverence for the Eucharist have very rarely chosen the hard teachings of Catholicism over the easy teachings of Protestantism. Paul VI wasn't a prophet, he was just a wise and holy man who saw what was likely to happen if communion in the hand wasn't stopped, and he wasn't alone. Speaking about the survey the Pope had conducted, Memoriale Domini says, "...from the returns it is obvious that a large majority of bishops believe that the present discipline should remain unchanged, and that if it were changed, it would be offensive to the sensibilities and the spirituality of these bishops and of the majority of the faithful." Now remember, this wasn't some survey of a small group of ultra-traditionalists. It wasn't just Paul VI asking people who agreed with him what they thought. This was a full, comprehensive survey of all the bishops of the Latin Rite of the Church. Over 2,000 prelates responded, and the overwhelming response was, no, don't change the manner of reception. It's not a good idea, it's actively a bad idea. We don't want it, the people don't want it, it comes with all kinds of dangers, it's anti-Catholic, and can lead to nothing good. Paul VI, being Pope, Didn't have to listen to anyone. But making it clear this was the prevailing view of the bishops and not just one bishop in white in Rome, it made the issue clear. And speaking of making things clear, Memoriale Domini goes on to say, In view of the seriousness of the matter and the force of the arguments put forward, the Holy Father has felt that the time-honored way of administering Holy Communion to the faithful should not be changed. The Apostolic See therefore emphatically urges bishops, priests and faithful to submit diligently to the law which is still valid and which has again been confirmed in accordance with both the judgment given by the majority of Catholic bishops and the form of the rite currently in use in the sacred liturgy and out of the common good of the Church." At this point there doesn't seem to be much more to say. Rome has spoken, the case is closed, right? The Pope ordered this instruction drafted in a handwritten memo, a memo which makes it clear He considers communion in the hand an abuse, and that he wants communion on the tongue to be the norm. The Congregation of Divine Worship writes this document, which the Pope signs off on, saying explicitly and clearly, communion on the tongue is to be the normal, approved method, and the only method authorized by law. The Pope urges Catholics, appealing to their charity and sense of unity, calling for them to submit diligently to the law, which is communion on the tongue. That was 1969. Look around nearly 50 years later. What went wrong? Well, there was a weakness in Memorale Domini, the infamous concession clause. This strategy of accepting the abuses that had already happened and couldn't be undone was present in Paul VI's initial memo, and the Congregation of Divine Worship placed it in the final document. Beno Cardinal Gutt, the prefect of the congregation, offered a possible explanation for Paul VI's decision when he gave an interview which was reprinted in Documentation Catholique. We hope that from now on, with the new regulations, this craze of experimentation will come to an end, Until now, the bishops were allowed to authorize experiments, but sometimes these went beyond the limits of that authorization, and many priests simply did what they pleased. In this case, what happened at times is that they forced their own way. These unauthorized initiatives quite often couldn't be stopped because they had spread too far. In his great goodness and wisdom, the Holy Father frequently gave in, and oftentimes against his will. The Pope not only has to go to war with the troops he has, but also pick his battles. Rightly or wrongly, Paul VI felt communion in the hand was firmly entrenched in some areas, that he would be unable to uproot this abuse easily. The damage to the faithful, confusion, a vacuum of leadership, perhaps even schism, would be too great. And so he instructed the Congregation of Divine Worship to include a concession clause designed explicitly to not permit further abuse, but to prevent existing abuse from spreading. Let's take a look at this so-called concession clause. The only part of memoriali domini agents of darkness on either side of the debate seem to be able to quote. Where contrary usage, that of placing Holy Communion in the hand, already prevails, in these specific cases, the Episcopal conferences, after a prudent study, the decisions are to be made by a two-thirds majority and by a secret vote. They should present them to the Holy See for the necessary confirmation, accompanied by a careful explanation of the reasons by which they were led to making them. The Holy See will examine each case carefully. This last section, by far the smallest, receives all the headlines and is used today to justify all kinds of abuses. But that was never the intent. It was not written for the majority of the church. It says, where communion in the hand already prevails. So it's speaking exclusively about those situations where in 1969, communion in the hand was the norm. And of course, lest we forget, that means what everyone is doing, even that they shouldn't be. And we totally urge people to stop that and follow the law for a whole bunch of really, really, really good reasons. In practice, for Paul VI in 1969, that meant Holland, Belgium, Germany, and perhaps France, apropos of nothing, but it's really interesting to note that those countries were all either major hotbeds of the Protestant revolt or had their own private, extremely anti-Catholic revolutions. There is no case to be made, none at all, that the concession clause was intended to serve as a future loophole for any wannabe Protestants who wanted to jump on the bandwagon of communion in the hand. Where it already prevails is eminently clear, provided, of course, you find a good translation of the document. Oh, yes. This is a church document, and so it's written in Latin. There are lots of different translations floating around into various vernacular languages. Most of the time, the changes aren't significant. The odd word choice here and there, nothing serious. But there are some where the word already and the change in meaning it conveys to the sentence are missing or even, dare I say it, actively suppressed. And it's not just one word which suffered that fate. The whole document did. Today, the general feeling, fostered by some woolly-headed notion of the spirit of Vatican II popular among people who've never read the documents and who get their idea of what they say from agents of darkness with an agenda, the idea is that the Council called for communion in the hand. If people have even considered what the popes might have thought about this abuse, the thought that it is while crusty old conservatives like Benedict would have been against it, hip and cool guys like Francis and John Paul are totally down with it. And of course, Paul VI, the man who implemented all those wonderful Vatican II changes to the stuffy old church, bringing her finally into the 20th century, he must have actively been promoting it, right? None of that is true. We have video of the popes giving out communion on the tongue, explicit instructions from their master of ceremonies. And we have the clear words of Memorale Domini and a host of other documents and statements from Paul VI. But that never made it to the Catholics in the pew. Agents of darkness, dissident bishops eager to advance their own agenda, never presented the authentic mindset of Paul VI to their flocks. Like they did with the spirit of Vatican II, they gave a false impression of what this document said. By ignoring the repeated heartfelt and strident appeals to stop the abuse and return to the authentic, traditional, reverent practice and instead focusing on the extremely narrow concession clause, they were able to spin a false narrative, giving the impression communion in the hand was accepted or approved or even preferred by the church. Had these dissident bishops been loyal sons of the church we would not be having this conversation. The horrific, abusive practice of communion in the hand would never have spread beyond the Protestant heart of Europe and might perhaps have even been stopped and driven back there. It would certainly never have become as widespread as it has. And frankly, had the rest of the church, bishops, priests, and laity done more to fight it, its advance might have been checked. It's easy to blame Paul VI, saying he put the concession clause in or didn't discipline errant bishops as he should have done. But what did we... Or our predecessors do to stop this? Did we, do we, fight this with positive action and eager loyalty to not just some abstract notion of eternal Rome, but to the actual real Vatican, remaining within the Church and doing our part to right the ship? Or do we find it easier to just complain about how others did or did not do things to our satisfaction? Paul VI, aided by men like Bonini and Cardinal Gutt, sought to check the existing abuse and to prevent it from spreading. He didn't act on his own. He took the unprecedented step of not only polling the bishops, but actually making the results of the poll known. He had no reason to do that. He was the Pope, the Vicar of Christ. But he saw the depth of this evil, how far it had spread, and so he wanted group opinion on his side. Perhaps he realized many of these agents of darkness were more concerned with the opinion of man than the truth of God, and so wanted to show just how far away they were from mainstream Catholic thought. He consistently ordered communion in the hand to be stopped. He gave no permission for further experimentation. His so-called concession clause did not automatically grant permission, and permission would only be considered in areas where the abuse was already widespread. The word used was prevailing. The abuse had to be so bad and so deep-rooted it had become the location's tradition. Even in those cases, he wanted the bishops to do everything they could to stop it. He made no promises, no assurances about granting an indult. Rome would have to decide based on specific conditions, without which no permission would be granted. And the only way a conference could even petition Rome was after a secret ballot of the local Episcopal conference generated a two-thirds majority. Now, a secret ballot is of great importance. Bishops are only human and can be influenced by the opinions of those around them. If the cardinals and archbishops are for something, then the lesser bishops, ordinaries of smaller dioceses or auxiliary bishops, well, they can find themselves pressured to fall in line. A secret ballot defends them against this kind of pressure. Paul VI's intentions were clear. In the end, however, all his efforts were for naught. His attempt to stop communion in the hand failed utterly. Many people would say that his final effort, Morali Domini, not only failed to check the spread of this abuse, but helped it because of the concession clause, which allowed local bishops' conferences to gain permission from Rome. But that isn't the case. It's not fair to say the concession clause was used to gain indulgence for communion in the hand. Rather, it's accurate to say the concession clause was abused to allow communion in the hand. Deception, lies, behind-the-scenes machinations, disregard of law and procedure, all of these were part of the course for certain bishops' conferences when it came to pushing this abuse through. Paul VI was a wise man, a good man, a holy man, but he was also perhaps somewhat innocent and naive. He could not conceive or did not want to admit the evil that lurks in the heart of men, or perhaps did not realize just how little support he would get from those he charged to enforce his desires. The blame for communion the hand being so widespread should not be laid at the feet of the Pope or Vatican II. Rather, it should be laid firmly at the feet of certain Episcopal conferences, particularly the American conference, whose treacherous deceptions more than anything else paved the way for wholesale abuse. Now, how they did it is not widely known, but the evidence is there, and my team aims to find it.
0: Discover why thousands of readers worldwide turn to The Wanderer newspaper for weekly perspective
3: and analysis of the news and events that increasingly threaten our values and our way of life. Hello, my name is Joe Matt, publisher of America's oldest national Catholic weekly newspaper, The Wanderer. If you take your Catholic faith seriously, and you are concerned about the direction of our country, the ever encroaching hand of big government, the assault of the culture on the traditional family, and the threat of progressive leaders in our churches who embrace much of the current leftist culture, rather than opposing it, you will find a home in the pages of the Wanderer. If you are tired of being force-fed the agenda-driven false narratives of the day by the godless dominant media and the political elite who preside within our government, our schools, and yes, in our Catholic churches, it is time for you to take a look at The Wanderer. Every week The Wanderer addresses these concerns, exposing the who, what, and the why with sound analysis and solutions to these problems that threaten the values we hold dear. Not only is The Wanderer a great source for the issues that affect our lives, but it is also a great tool to learn more about the treasures of our Catholic faith and how to defend it in this time of great moral decay. I am so confident you will like The Wanderer. For you six-packers out there, I have a special offer. For one dollar, that's one dollar, we are offering new subscribers the opportunity to receive one month's worth of issues. That's four weekly issues. Take the Wanderer for a test drive. After one month, it is $9 a month. You can cancel anytime you want. I hope you will take advantage of this limited offer today. Text the word NEWS to 830-331-5729 and I will send you a link to this offer or look for the link in Joe's show notes below. The Wanderer The Wanderer 154 years,
0: unabashedly pro-life, independent and conservative in its politics, and steadfast
1: in its defense of Orthodox Catholicism. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Patrick. He said, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. When Paul was seven years old, he made his first Holy Communion. From that day on, he became a close friend of Jesus. He went to Holy Communion every day with his mother for the conversion of his father, who'd been away from the church for a long time. One day the pastor asked Paul why he received Communion every day. He answered, I receive Communion every day because I want to please Jesus and because the Pope wants us to go often. Then Paul began to cry. The priest asked him why he was crying. Paul said, Father, there's another reason why I go to communion every day. It's for my father. You know he doesn't go to church. I know that, Paul, but as long as you're asking Jesus to help your father in your communions, I'm sure he'll come back to God. One night at the dinner table, Paul asked his father, Dad, why do you want me to eat every day? That's a foolish question, Paul. You know that if your body can't get food, it can't live. I understand that, Dad, but Father told us that if we don't receive the food of communion, our soul can't live either. Dad, is your soul alive? His father became very angry, and without another word, he left the room. A year later, when he was eight years old, Paul became very ill. He suffered like a little martyr for an entire month. The priest brought him communion every day. On Holy Thursday, kneeling in his bed, he received viaticum. But even this didn't move his father. Paul called him to his side and whispered, "'Dad, I'm going to die.' "'Why do you say that?' asked his father. "'Because I told Jesus that he could take me out of this world if only you'd not lose your soul. Don't worry, Paul, you'll get well again. Dad, will you do me a favor before I die?' please go back to communion for my sake. Paul hardly finished that last beautiful word when his head dropped. The bells of the churches were ringing throughout the city for mass, and Paul's mother didn't realize that her boy was already in the arms of Jesus. Paul lay dead before his father. This was too much that this little boy should offer his life to save his father's soul. He fell to his knees, took Paul's cold hand, and kissed it while tears filled his eyes with the sorrow for his sins. Paul's father went to confession that very day. On Sunday, as he knelt at the communion rail, he heard his boy's voice telling him, Dad, take my place at the communion rail. His fathers received communion every day since. Paul loved his father so much that he was willing to die to save his soul. You can't show a greater love for anyone than to lead them closer to God, especially by your Holy Communion, prayers, and good example. Hey, Six-Pack Warriors, before you leave this episode, be sure to go to my show notes and click on the subscribe link. Just pick Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, whichever one you want to subscribe through. You don't have to subscribe to hear the show, but the more subscribers there are, the more these platforms will make the cantankerous Catholic known to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. The more reviews, the more the show gets shown to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And I thank you.
0: This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.